hello, and welcome to the first episode of Diving Into the Data Den, Season 2, your friendly neighborhood data podcast run by desperate students for desperate students and other interested people. This is a show where we talk about the ever-growing domain of data, gain insights from industry professionals of diverse backgrounds, and expose everyone to what seems to lie deep in this den. I'm your host, Jamin, and together with my co-host, Invita, for this episode, we have both an academic and industry weapon. They've swiftly navigated through a series of successful internships at notable tech companies, honing their skills in machine learning, data science, backend engineering, as well as being an attendee and alumni of our own University of Waterloo. At Wombo, they've played a crucial role as a founding engineer, contributing to the app's ranking top five um, on the App Store in over 20 countries, boasting over 50 million downloads. Um, their experience also extends to Jane Street, Grok, Splunk, where they've tackled challenges in many different areas like low latency compilers and backend analytics. So everyone, please welcome Navia. <laughs> wow, thank you so much. Yes, that was a very flattering introduction. <laughs> I mean, you're a you're not a very hard person to um, flatter. You're a you're pretty cracked to say. <laughs> and so, just to get started, we're gonna do some rapid fire questions. So, if you don't know what rapid fire questions are, um, we're gonna be asking you really simple questions. Um, for example, um, you know, what's your name? Um, then you want to try to answer in one word or really short sentences. And we're just gonna be jumping from question to question. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. Cool. So we're going to get started in three, two, one. What's your job title? I am a compiler engineer. What did you study in university? Uh, computer science, on, on paper, computing and financial management, but I never really used the finance side of things. Okay. <laughs> Favorite programming language? Ooh, um, C++ or Python with the bindings of C++ that I need. Mm. Favorite SQL command? I don't think that one exists. <laughs> ever. <laughs> AWS versus Azure versus GCP. Oh, uh, hands down, uh, AWS, like probably the most like startup friendly one that is. TensorFlow or PyTorch? Uh, it's 2023, right? PyTorch, yeah. <laughs> Favorite coding snack? Coding snack? Uh... I know, like a sandwich. Hmm. Your most recommended tech book? Oh, tech book would be Elements of Statistical Learning. Uh, probably the best ML introduction I've ever had. Hmm. Best time of the day to code? Best time of the day, uh, hands down in the morning. I've probably gotten my most interesting work done before 10. Uh, Windows or Mac or Linux? Oh, yeah, I was going to be like, oh, Linux, the third one. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite ML algorithm? Favorite ML algorithm? I'm going to say graph neural networks, uh, mainly because of how sparse they are and like the interesting challenges they actually give you on implementation. Hmm. And if you weren't doing data science or ML, what would you be doing instead? I would be running a farm, growing my own wine, yes. Oh, your own wine. Interesting. Nice. Are you a are you a wine enthusiast? Uh, I I like to say so. Some people disagree, but uh, yeah, fancy. Do you prefer red or white wine then? Oh, white wine all the way. White wine all the way. Aren't so? What's the what's the different? What like what's the um like why white wine over red wine then? So uh. I, I don't know how to put this, but I think I have exceedingly low tolerance for red wine. So white is the only way that I actually face myself through the night. <laughs> so if you're not going to be in data science, that would be, I think, I think that's the pipeline for a lot of, you know, software people as well. You know, they think like they ask you in your career, like, like in your first year, you're like, oh, you know, I'm gonna, I see myself as like a senior engineer, like five years later, they're like, I want to be on a farm. <laughs> but I think I see it slightly differently for me. Like, uh, I, I, my biggest goal, like in the next five years, next decade is really to build something. And what I mean by that is not like build a product. I don't find that very interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it's 
build a technology and i think there's a differentiation factor there because sure you could build like a new type of a product that exists but i find more interesting is hey can we design radically new hardware can we design like a new way to index the world's information like those are hard interesting problems to work on and like i think that is what like is the most important to me and maybe if we succeed at it down the line we shall be a wine connoisseur yes mm so what would be an example of a like what would be an example of like like a techno like an innovation you've seen before that's not just a new product but like like a technology like you mentioned or like a like a new i guess thing overall so um i think one of the most interesting examples would be the grok tensor streaming processor and that's something that really got me interested in grok in the first place um like a li- little over a year ago uh the whole idea is that modern ai workloads are like you have both training and inference and you're running all of these on like massive gpus number one gpus were never designed to be me- like were never meant for ai acceleration right they were originally like gaming graphics right but now you've essentially scaled over to like trillion parameter models your um over the last 5 years machine learning has matured to the point where you have an exponential increase in the size of your like model like your state of the art models right we went from like bert to uh gpt4 that's over a million ta- million fold increase right, right. but at, at at the same time um your hardware has not grown that uh, significantly like we're talking about like on chip memory we're talking about like the number of tops per watt or the number of tops itself that uh, a lot of this hardware can support and i think this is primarily due to the fact that hardware innovation takes time like if your cycle for innovating uh, new models is orders of magnitude faster hardware is never going to catch up and like nvidia increased its on memory on chip memory like 20% in the same time that we like 30x our models it's right. just not sustainable and so we have a very difficult problem and i think this is like possibly the most interesting problem of this decade that we simply do not have enough compute and the compute that we have is extraordinarily expensive to the point where training like state of the art models takes excruciatingly long is very power inefficient and extremely expensive mm-hmm. so your experimentation goes down only big labs can train it you have to train it on the cloud you can't move it to the edge right and this actually limits the way that we can actually deploy ai right like imagine your phone being able to imagine like siri being able to run on your iphone without the internet that would need extremely efficient large language nets running on your phone silicon mm-hmm. and so the, so grok tsp doesn't address the edge issue but they address the data center issue which is can we build the world's most performant um chip that can go into like these massive uh, data warehouses and allow us to train uh, models extremely efficiently and like their initial results are very impressive we're talking about like 17x improvements on like re- on like nvidia gpus and innovating in hardware especially from like a grok sc- compiler perspective takes time because you have to build a good like developer ecosystem uh nvidia has a monopoly on that with like the cuda system right? right and so some of the time that i spent at grok we were actually building out the compiler which was really exciting because grok offloads as much compute as possible into the compiler and there are like fascinating algorithmic problems to work on on like how you schedule say large nets across like seven chips at the same time for example and i think that is that kind of innovation can really drive things forward there's mm-hmm. there's encharge ai as well where the whole idea is can we bring this kind of innovation down to the edge you're now talking about uh, like chips that get maybe 5 6 7 watts of energy and on that kind of energy you need to be able to run quantized models as efficiently as possible and it's it's interesting because this is where we can, this is where like software meets the real world right so speaking of i mean all these types of innovations which interest you personally i mean you've been a founding engineer of such a successful app how did the idea to actually develop your ai powered lip sync app come to be uh i i think it actually uh, if uh, we go back to like early 2021 um 
a close friend of mine who was on the founding team leading like ops and product he he reached out to me just when like he had the idea and he was like hey we saw like there's this new um like ai model that's recently come out from academia and that was like the first order motion model um and it seems really cool some of its initial results actually suggest its ability to pick up like facial benchmarks very well like mm-hmm. facial landmarks very well uh i read into it it seemed really interesting and there was a good like product use case for this and i was like why not build it because sure like there is some initial research that's that exists in academia but there were like a lot of interesting engineering challenges from our perspective to the point where how do you actually build an asynchronous like it has to be we wanted it to be asynchronous because usage can spike a lot our gpus could not auto scale efficiently and so we're like we need to build some kind of asynchronous inference pipeline and this is probably going to be like a very high throughput system right and we preferably also wanted to be low latency but throughput latency going to be a trade off uh how do we make this as efficient as possible and that is really what got me interesting to uh, got me interested to begin with we did like a lot of like uh, low level optimizations on how we batch different parts of the original first order motion model there were like uh, we tried to like max out like low level system performance on like each of our gpus where we tried to offload as much work as possible to like a large number of cpu threads that are spawned up to ensure that gpu utilization is always as high as possible like we never want any of our resources to be idle and those kind of like very theoretical challenges is what got me intrigued we yeah. spent like a lot of time building that out and i think that was like that v1 of our system that was also used for like our ai art app right at, at its core it's using that same infrastructure to run a different set of models right so all the testing that you did with kind of optimizing this did you ever have a moment where you tried something and it just wasn't working and you guys had to go back and like did you ever face challenges like that oh definitely because uh like the lower and lower you go into the stack uh, go into the stack closer to hardware there's this lesser tools out there for evaluating performance like there were a lot of times when we'd make a change that we believed would work but we then run into there, there was there was one issue that i can recount where we were excessively adding load to some of our like data stores in order to query the status of generations and mm-hmm. so we made like a massive change initially where we can like try to cache these responses from the like the worker that's generating this art itself right like say the someone like there is a gpu that's generating your art you're on the app you want to see intermediate generations you want to poll the status that needs to be as efficient as possible and we created a setup where we'd like send callbacks and on paper theoretically that seems pretty efficient right because the number of callbacks that are sent are much fewer than the rate of polling and so you're only updating when you really need to update right. uh in our case that actually turned out to be very inefficient because we were now thrashing our api nodes and these kind of things you only see in your production setup right like we started noticing that our nodes were dying because some nodes were just not able to handle the load and our gateway started failing and that's when we were like hey maybe we need to try like some different approach to this these are problems that number one do not arise unless you're at sufficient scale and uh, even when they do arise are fairly tricky to debug because of how low in the stack they are Right. um but it was an interesting learning experience we ended up like uh, using like a persisted websocket system to avoid like thrashing our gateway and built like our own set of like multi-threaded callbacks that like continuously send updates to the state to make our system efficient but like reaching there was maybe like two three iterations of the product right now that's interesting perspective to have when you're kind of starting from scratch and trying to understand things from the ground up Um and I'm sure you spearheaded like several other technical initiatives. Do you have any I don't know one of your key projects that uh was most fun for you or you want to kind of explain? Hmm, I have a couple at the very top of my mind. Um I'd say I actually I'd go with like two specific projects. Um one of them was Semantic Search at Wombo. 
And so the the whole idea here is we have a large number of people who are publishing artworks that they've generated within our system to the order of something around um, 30, 35 million artworks published and over like 1.6 billion generated. And so we're dealing with a lot of data. and But at the same time, this gives us a unique opportunity to allow people to explore artistic styles without actually generating more art. What that means is when someone is, say, scrolling through feed, when someone, say, decided to make new art, when someone searched for some particular art, like there are a bunch of places in the app in like a user's experience where it would be nice if given a particular stimulus, say some art, find anything similar to it. And so we set out to design our own semantic search engine. And this had to be something that's highly efficient, but give like good similar results what the access that we had were was every prompt and every image that has ever been published within our systems what we set out to do was we actually leveraged like clip embeddings because we know that if we embedded our prompts and our images into like the clip latent space and we tried to find like cosine similarities that's gonna give us like good like very good results on um if we had exhaustive search that would theoretically give you the best results obviously Mm -hmm. we can't use exhaustive search at our scale and so we're like hey we can leverage like an approximate nearest neighbor system uh the way that we built it out was the we tried both namespaces we tried to index everything in our systems by prompt we tried to index everything in our systems by images Uh, And we ran like a large number of benchmark tests across like 100 worker cores. And we realized that the best similarity results were coming from when we embed the image instead of the prompt that made the image, because that creates like the best similarity. And so what we set off to do was, hey, we're going to create like some kind of cron job that's going to embed everything that a user has made in say the last hour, the last two hours, have some system that continuously embeds new data into like a massive vector database that we have. And also continuously cleans off data that was not accessed, data that was old, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so it keeps our vector database fresh with only the images that people have liked interacting with and are fairly recent. And so now at the same time, whenever a user request comes in with a particular prompt, we want to be able to quickly serve everything that's similar to it. And this was fascinating to build because what we need to do is we need to clip embed this. Then we need to fire off like a large number of uh, approximate near, nearest neighbor searches to mm-hmm. find uh, every possible like good neighbor and then populate additional metadata on top of this to build full objects. While and embeddings on CPUs are excessively slow. So we actually moved the GPUs into production for this. And we uh, like specced out like the best GPU on offer where we could get as much CPU cores attached to a single GPU because GPU work is very limited when you embed. And the moment you do, we spin off over like 20 threads that fire off uh, calls to our uh, vector database. And we like custom paginate across the results that we get to the point where we're able to run semantic search in around 70 to 80 milliseconds. And that means that, yeah, it's like sub 100 milliseconds, a user is able to get maybe 20 to 30 artworks similar to something they've recently liked. And that powers feed, that powers every piece of personalization within the app. Wow. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I'm sure that like, must have been also probably a tough project for you to work on as well, but that's great. Yeah, and and a lot of and, and like a lot of things, um, not just in you know specifically machine learning or compilers, but um, like a lot of things involve just breaking things down into, well, I guess like actionable components. And to start, you need to learn the foundations, and you need to know about you know nearest neighbors, and you need to know about embeddings. Um, so, what kind of advice would you give some, to someone that wants to break into um, let's say machine learning or that kind of industry in general. That is a interesting question. And I have two different perspectives on this. So on one side, 
I agree that like you know playing around with this deck is the best starting point there is to the point where hey we have the Boston housing set or we have like say like an Iris toy data set bring it out understand the data like try different ways to visualize it first play with like a data cleaning pipeline uh like data uh like filling out missing data uh, visualizing relationships running statistical tests like test out different null hypotheses like your entire statistical arsenal right. and then like hey this is a classification to regression problem because these are all prediction problems and uh, try different models see what is your best accuracy analyze auc roc on the like like just like you know play around with how to build these things but on the other side like i think that's a good starting point and that's how i started as well uh but what was really useful in my opinion was deciding where your interest lies because your interest can be in one of two things uh when you're dealing with machine learning you're either interested in like rapidly drawing insights from data like data science in essence where the focus is oh, can i build good models that add business value right right and in that sense there is a in that sense there is like good value in like trying in trying out new models trying out what works but on the other side i think if you're interested on um like research and engineering there is a lot of value in getting deep with the math and the reality is that the kind of computer science courses at waterloo that cover the mathematical underpinnings of this come pretty late on uh, we're we're talking about courses that are in fourth year um there is like cs486 cs485 uh 485 is really good talks about statistical uh foundations of ml but i would have loved to have that kind of content early on in university mainly because understanding the math behind it allows me to apply these in a large number of situations uh the way that i did get that kind of math background was elements of statistical learning um there was um i keep forgetting the name it was the financial applications of machine learning or something it's a uh, book by marco uh, lopez de prado um it's specifically in context of finance but the tools and techniques he talks about are very generally applicable right and that actually allowed me to transition in the sense that my role at grok was still machine learning based where hey i am still um, like dealing with like bot like mobile net a lot of my work was also trying to get like uh, distill bot on the chip but at the same time it is not like building models or like training and running inference on these models right mm-hmm. it is actually implementing them down on the chip and that's that's where the math uh, of this comes into picture because when you say machine learning like data science is not the only job that is out there right. there are like machine learning compilers there is ml research there is like high throughput ml eng where you actually want to use these systems and move them real time or near real time and a lot of these kind of roles r- would really like you to approach it from a purely mathematical perspective so an example would be like when say you're interested in like going into like machine learning compilers a good understanding would be what is a memory bandwidth and what is a computational bandwidth mm-hmm. when it comes to implementing models on the chip because it's very likely that there are some kind of operations that are heavily memory constrained because they do not access like contiguous sections of memory like they don't involve a lot of computation but the amount that they have to pull from memory means that uh these operations take a lot of time to schedule on a chip compare these to operations that are like very computationally extent extensive expensive and have specialized sections on the hardware dedicated to implementing them something like a three dimensional convolution right and yeah it's there are really good books and resources out there but the first thing is identifying what brings you to machine learning mm-hmm. and that that realization only comes once you start playing with it right and and i think you actually 
touched on at the end there, like what I was going to ask next, which was um, specifically, I guess the most ideal scenario for those kind of situations would be you, you're able to learn it in a classroom, you're, you're able to dive into the math um, in a more of a formal setting. But for people who are coming from, I guess, non-traditional backgrounds, um, what kind of resources or learning paths would you kind of suggest? And I guess you mentioned um, introduction to statistical learning is a, would be a good starting point, but what else would you maybe have? So I think a, um, some really good resources here uh, would be ex- like the PyTorch development community has some really amazing resources on how they try to get like uh, you might have heard that like the e- compilation mode was recently introduced to PyTorch and there is a lot of good literature online within the PyTorch development community on how they got um, like a multi-head attention, for example, or like vision transformers, like things that are fairly um, state of the art when it comes to like CV or language tasks to compile very efficiently and like produce really good results on like an A100. And when you come from a non-traditional background, once you have that initial exposure, which is, hey, I have say played with PyTorch or hey, I've played with Scikit-learn and I have some amount of understanding on how like these machine learning models work, what like accuracy and performance metrics are like. And if you're interested in delving into the engineering side of things, these kind of like PyTorch based blogs specifically from Facebook about them developing like their compilation feature, it's very extensive, Mm -hmm. is like an amazing read. And that kind of gives you a break point, right? Like when you read that, it's like, hey, do I want to be building models or do I want to be making them go fast? And if making them go fast is where the interest is, there is like a different set of literature. And this is the kind of stuff that's not necessarily covered in like, uh, like Waterloo ML courses as well, but it's like, like mixed precision arithmetic. And how exactly can quantization help models go faster? What are effective trips, like tips and tricks for quantization, dealing with like pruning, knowledge distillation and the like, and how that affects accuracy. A lot of this comes from very specialized like edX or Coursera courses. Mm -hmm. And so the way I put this is there is a lot of knowledge out there, but it's very dispersed. And so the first step is figuring out that subsection of machine learning where your interest lies. If it is uh, the kind of things that I have personally been very interested in, there are amazing resources on like like these MOOCs online Mm -hmm. that teach you a lot of this content. If if it is research, then definitely like there is an academic route at heart here. And so at the end of the day, we are a podcast that we're kind of looking to appeal to students. We're trying to provide value to students. And of course, the universal question nowadays is, you know, how, so what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's interested in pursuing um, internships at, you know, high profile tech companies or not even high profile tech companies, just, you know, breaking into industries and companies they're interested in, um, kind of like the ones that you have worked with. So what kind of advice would you have there? So I think uh, this might be controversial, but I think the best way that that as at least worked for me early on was try to pursue the most technical roles. And the reason I say this is I, I remember when I was on my first couple co-ops, there were a large number of roles that were like very framework dependent, right? Mm-hmm. They were like, hey, you are still working close to um, data science, but your role is building dashboards or your role is connecting like internal, um, like data engineering side work, which is like, hey, we want you to connect a bunch of like these pipelines that drive like new data that like that ingest new data across our company. Right. And there will be things that are deeply tied to specific frameworks. But the thing is, frameworks change mm-hmm. and what stays is the underlying technical concepts that come with them. So something that was really important for me was be doing the most technical work possible because that is where like the value add Hmm. is the most. 
and what i mean by that is hey you got a data engineering role you have like you have some kind of flexibility in pushing for what kind of projects you're able to take up uh with your manager right. instead of trying to go for hey this fan- fancy new tool that allows me to build my pipelines faster and like add it as a new technology on your resume be focused on uh hey how do i actually process petabytes of data efficiently or what kind of like uh, transformations can i use on data to the point where there is lesser data that reaches downstream nodes that are say slower or like have more business processes to compute because right. sure you're not learning in new technology that you can talk about but these fundamentals are far harder to grasp and internships are an amazing opportunity to be able to grasp these in production settings at scale that you normally don't get at university frameworks can be learned over time right and and i think that's pretty interesting you brought that up that at the end of the day that you want to um like the way you maintain like a high sense of value for yourself is you know to guide a grasp these fundamentals well um and so i think this will be relevant in my next question is that if you were somebody who was sitting down um reviewing your next you know like interns or you're looking to pick people who's um trying to work with you or at your company um what would you be looking for in them and i guess in a really s- s- distilled sense what would be some red flags and some green flags uh that you would be on the lookout for um so i personally have a very strong preference for uh like deeply technical but generalist engineers and what i mean by that is you want like what i think is really powerful is people who have worked on a large variety of things so we are talking hey they have exposure to working with compilers they have exposure working with say machine learning ml research maybe they've also worked on some like very close to hardware performance work etc etc but they have been deeply technical in all of that work right. so what you are essentially getting is someone who can work across the stack at a startup while while you know that their foundations are extremely strong like the fundamentals are strong it's very easy for them to pick up a new stack and just work along the way so think think of a company like Waymo for example start driving cars oh yeah we that that's kind of funny we actually interviewed um like our the chief the chief uh, ml guy at Waymo um and then i know he was also deeply technical but if we keep going sorry sorry <laughs> oh no i mean like i think self driving like the way that a lot of these self driving car companies have been built over the past decade is very fascinating to me mm-hmm. because you when you're dealing with problems like perception when you're dealing with like how do i build a very efficient map of like the world around me the kind of engineers you want to hire for something like that would be like people who are insanely technical with like things like latency and performance because hey it doesn't matter if you detect a pedestrian if you detect him like 20 seconds later and he's already been run over right. <laughs> and but at the same time you want to be able to do th- like so this is like the balance between like efficiency and accuracy you want people who are brilliant at research you want people who are brilliant when it comes to like low latency engineering and these are as technical as it gets right so when i'm looking when say hypothetically i'm looking to make a hire i'm like hey what it, have they worked on the largest variety of the most technical things possible out there right and like how have they performed on that right so in summary you want to see a wide range of experiences but also that like they have a really good fundamental grasp of those things they've done um you know rather than just like 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 making something on a framework like i guess more like more um about the knowledge than the application in some way i guess in some way yes but i would like to underscore that generalism is actually quite underrated mm. uh in the sense that hey there is someone who's worked on a um on say perception for a very long time has worked on it for like 10 years you definitely want him on your team right but at the same time you probably also want someone who's say dabbled across like five different types of problems because when you're dealing with systems that are essentially state of the art you're working at the frontier there is no known way to solve the perception problem like we don't have l5 autonomy right now you want a variety of perspectives 
and that comes from having dealt with a diversity of problems right. someone who has worked on uh, like hardware has a particular like way of looking at it and that's very detailed and that's definitely something you want in the team but you also want someone who's worked on something very different but still technical and brings a whole new way of designing say graph algorithms for me right so that that sense of generalism is very underrated it brings a lot of important new perspectives to places that might start becoming very concentrated in thought right and i guess the conclusion to this would be you know if you could go back in time um what kind of advice would you give yourself when you were just starting out in your career both professionally or academically then something i would say is definitely explore like i know i know a lot okay let me put it two ways definitely explore and don't get carried away by the hype let me let me quickly summarize uh when i started out i was very much on the finance side of things that's what really got me into cfm to begin with and i was like hey i want to be someone who is say like a quant researcher of sorts playing with models building things had a couple internships working at banks and like research institutions like like mortgage and research institutions and i was like this sounds really cool but i was like let me try something else and that's when i realized that maybe that is not the best fit for me and i think co-op was really useful there because whatever i learned on my first two internships was still very useful from a technical perspective on other things i do mm-hmm. but it was just that that industry might not be a good fit for me right or um hey i don't want to do very business facing data science work i want to say do le- learn more about the math behind it and do something like further down the stack and this is something that you you might see this from like my uh, internship experiences right went from data science to compiler eng to like like high throughput back end work uh-huh. to compiler eng again like it's a it's a variety but a lot of those things overlap with each other and that sense of exploration is really key because um like you don't want to pigeonhole yourself where you do something and like maybe what closer to the time you're graduating you realize that hey maybe there's something else out there and you can still try new things but things start becoming stickier as you go along uh and the other thing is i i still remember back in first year um it was like cali or bust uh go to california or you shall not have a tech career um i don't think that is very useful um mainly because you don't want to conflate prestige with the quality of work you're doing like i think those are two very separate things mm-hmm. how prestigious a role seems to be may not directly correlate with how groundbreaking your work really right. is and i think your focus should be like learn as much as possible and like that complacency should never come right like if you're if two co-ops are very identical and you're being able to do everything on your new co-op on day 1 because he have done this before like you aren't really growing technically right. like that that learning curve all always needs to stay somewhat steep and there are different ways of getting that steepness like either going very deep into a field switching fields but in my opinion like i think that's a very interesting way of keeping your engineering skills sharp right like how quickly can you delve into something you may not have worked with before right. but can quickly pick up and contribute efficiently mm-hmm. So you just mentioned some of the resources and opportunities that you personally took to further your own professional development, uh, as well as some of the more challenging courses that you took during your time at Waterloo, and uh, I guess more challenging technical internship experiences that you have under your belt. And so myself, and I'm sure many other students are curious about this as well, as it's something that uh, in the day-to-day life of a student we really face is just balancing academics with your involvement in uh, various societies at Waterloo, because I know you were in a lot of clubs, I believe, at your time during your time there as well, um, and just you know balancing your work and the involvement that you have and your professional development. Um, how did you manage your time and all of that, and what did you really learn from these experiences when it came to managing your time? Uh, trust me, if you if you saw me those five years, you would not call what I did managing. Um, but <laughs> if if I if I look back, I think. I think what worked for me was always drawing like a line, right? In the sense that um academics are important to me. I was like, "Hey, I want good grades on my courses." Like 
this is contrary to like hey oh academics don't matter grades don't matter etc etc i think they do because the kind of like structured academic environment you have it allows you to grasp a lot of technical concepts much better than you could in a very like non structured online fashion and so i ensured that i could dedicate enough time to like courses that were really important to me things like like object oriented design that was like a coming of age course of sorts in second year or like dealing with like graduate algorithms and stuff like that like i want enough time to be dedicated to these courses but at the same time i realized that there is a diminishing return to trying to get the perfect academic record uh there is diminishing record returns going from like a 95 to a 98 to a 99 or like a 90 to a 97 and so what that essentially manifested in is a courses that may not be very important to me or like courses that i don't attach a lot of meaning to these might be elective courses these might be courses that i'm required to take but are very tangential to something i want to do with my career right i will minimize the amount of time i dedicate to it significantly sure it results in some amount of impact on my academic record but not but i am willing to take that because that frees up a lot of my time to be able to do other things and at the same time i'm not like sacrificing the courses that quote unquote are very important to the kind of skills i want to develop Right. one can argue that that results in like a not a very well rounded education and that might be a very true statement to make but it allows me to focus on what's most important to me right and so what that allowed me to do was in my first two years uh every term that like my made we study made we co-op i was focused on learning one thing outside of school or work um that term so you're like hey one term i just want to pick up how to build like classification ml models or hey this term i want to learn about reinforcement learning and how to actually build efficient sarsa systems my first goal with reinforcement learning was actually finding a way to beat my roommate at poker but that is a long story but the focus was just can i find these independent things like very achievable four month goals but i'm like can i get a beginners introduction to reinforcement learning in 4 years in 4 months i believe i can because you can build models you can play around with them you can understand the limitations of certain models where they work where they don't etc and at the same time uh, i got a good introduction to like deep learning in general and then that allowed my future terms in third year to be purely experimentations there was the conway's go uh, game of life it's like a single player automaton of sorts that allows you to like progress through time and like it's kind of a complicated game it's you start with a figure and that figure evolves over time but according to a certain number of rules but a very fascinating challenge is reversing that game an x number of time steps into the past uh using a like deep learning model and these are very like open research problems right and so every time that i spent a few terms like learning something new these kind of open problems these are like kaggle competitions for example right. were good opportunities to try out things i learned like i'm like hey i've played around with reinforcement learning can i build some kind of like rl agent that is rewarded for every time that he tries to reverse the step of the game or can i use some kind of like encoder decoder design or maybe i want to play with generative adversarial networks but maybe that's overkill for this problem because i'm never going to converge with the amount of data i have available um or can i take a discriminator that from like a very famous 2017 paper but take a generator design from somewhere else like mix and match things see what works see what doesn't hey this is extremely slow is there a better way to run these tensor operations efficiently it frees up time to just play around with things and i think that that allowed me to learn a lot more uh, pick up like research papers that are like really impactful and really interesting Um, I'm like obviously attention is all you need. Like 2017 paper that introduced transformers, but there's like Isola at uh, like 2017 where they talked about actually using um, like GANs for like specific e-commerce applications, if I remember correctly. And these were really fascinating papers. And I was able to free up that 15 hour a week in my school term to be able to do things like this. But right. Yeah, it, it is. It is a balancing act for sure. Uh, I I have made sacrifices for like other things I wanted to do, 
in the sense that when wombo took over i had to like scale down my commitments almost to zero when it came to like extracurricular clubs and activities and these trade offs will always exist you try to do everything you will burn out right but it's able just recognizing what's important to you i see and you mentioned that i mean you kind of pursued opportunities that allowed you to develop those technical skills and you made goals uh and freed up time in order to be able to progress your own learning in that sense. And so that also just makes me curious about you were also in a lot of clubs and extracurriculars. And I mean, you were on design teams, fintech clubs, you were doing like the business review as well. And what, I guess, inspired you to join these clubs rather than maybe pursue your own project or kind of do some more research on something that you're interested in? Like, how did you find that balance and what made you kind of want to join these clubs? uh i okay i'm going to i'm going to be honest about this in first year when i was like hey i've got into waterloo what are the clubs available here the entire perspective for me towards all of this was what is going to like quote and quote like boost my resume the most what's going <laughs> to be like the best thing to potentially do with my time and right. i think that was not very conducive for me in first year what i mean by that is i was like hey fintech club that sounds very big and elite let's try this or hey uh, why not try to organize like why not try to be at like residence council for example mm-hmm. but i realized that i was number one not learning things that i really was passionate about and so it seemed like things you were just doing for the sake of doing them Right. And I don't think that's very conducive. And so my perspective changed in second year when I was like there are two ways around that go around with building like a very building a strong profile for yourself as an engineer. One of them is like trying to do things that appear to be like very like prestigious or like just doing things that are super interesting to you and being extremely like trying to always get extremely good at it and so from like second year i significantly cut down on the number of my commitments but i maintained smaller like fewer more extensive commitments so things like waterloo business review like the reason i wanted to do it was i thought that was like a really good way of uh, bringing like very interesting technical concepts out and talking about societal implications for them like a lot of work i did with the business review was uh, i talked about like alternative credit modeling and how we can actually use uh, non traditional data sources and like newer research into classification methods to bring credit access to the to underserved communities and specifically in, influenced by like graph based networks like actually using this notion of like credit worthiness in a community and this kind of work was just like super interesting to me as a person right like there might be positions that always seem more prestigious but if you do what you like you're going to just have the ability to build a niche for yourself right or be a generalist like my point is that no one thing is right but identifying what makes the most sense for you and focusing on that uh, early on is a way to like become better as an engineer right And I mean it sounds like you knew kind of what skills you wanted to focus on what you wanted to develop throughout your time um in your internships and in school and what I guess maybe these don't have to be necessarily technical skills they could be anything but what skills do you think are necessary for success um as someone who's held roles in established companies and started your own just in both situations Hmm I I would say the ability to ramp up fast is very very critical and that is very close to the ability to learn things fast in the sense that tech is changing very rapidly right uh, like we did not have uh, like le- let me put a very simple example workflows for uh, designing say new applications 5 6 years Uh, early earlier are vastly different to what they are today mainly because hey we have like a newer generation of cloud services available we have a new set of like frameworks available to build these kind of like highly concurrent applications and so on the point being that things change rapidly 
and maybe it is at a single job as your technology progresses maybe it is um, as you switch companies and especially at a startup where things are very early stage your ability to pick up things fast is very critical and you do not need 100% information and this brings me to point number 2 the ability to work with imperfect information and what i mean by that is say you join grok right you're working on their chip you do not need to understand the complete intricacies of how like wirings and uh, like memory slices operate at a chip level before you are able to contribute um say a new machine learning operator because the idea is the ability to build mental models of things that might be incomplete but you can sandbox them in appropriate ways you may not understand how the chip works but you're like hey i have some basic understanding that i need to respect not putting uh, vectors say on adjacent memory locations and i'm just going to for for my understanding a location is just an index in this massive array that i have access to mm-hmm. so you are sandboxing information while like you're avoiding information that might complicate your issue and like require a large amount of extra understanding while still being completely technically correct with what you're doing right and this is especially important when like things are early on things may be fuzzy maybe your either things are very early on or very mature where you're trying to understand everything is just going to be very cumbersome and so that ability to sandbox is what gets you going very fast on a new system right can you start contributing it might be small but start building ownership in that stack and that's something that's really important right and i mean speaking of building ownership and just you haven't gone through the process of you know developing your own uh products and kind of learning everything that you have so far what do you think are some of the most significant proud moments that you've uh experienced in the span of your career uh proud moments uh i think i have a few that are really important to me uh one of them was the work that i was doing at splunk um the entire idea was can we build an efficient way for people to rapidly prototype security apps and do that in a completely independent environment with like a large number of like code enhancement and like parsing tools it was a very algorithmic project where we were essentially using like abstract syntax trees to like parse like different functions that users can invoke and how they're related and providing good f- tools around it that entire like design that i worked on for like 4 months is actually patent pending right now um in the united states uh, mm-hmm. splunk launched it to consumers about a year ago and it sits within like their phantom offering and i thought that was like really cool for me and apart from that at a at, at grok for example we were working on um essentially supporting arbitrary dimension pooling and this was a project that allowed us to compile like a large number of like language and vision models onto the chip where the chip originally supported a narrow set of like two dimensional like max pools average pools so on and so forth the focus was can we generalize this to support like every hyperparameter that comes out with these newer pooling layers uh things like dilations uh things like strides when they exceed your kernel size and things like that while at the same time being able to support arbitrary dimensions say you want to do like five dimensional pooling on seven dimensional data you don't want the way that you rewrite things into fundamental chip operations to be highly tied to the dimensionality of your data set and at the same time you want uh in at the same time the chip was experiencing some accuracy issues on like very large channels things like think like 500 channel like nchw tensors that are being streamed in and so all like my entire product project was building out uh, this kind of like generalizability of the entire like pooling infrastructure on the chip and doing it at the same time where uh, we can decompose pools and achieve like 3x speed ups on our chips you don't have like in a very dummy way if i have a a by b by c max pool op I don't need to do a by b by c max operations everything inside a kernel to get a max value because that is extremely slow high number of repetitions 
but we don't have efficient ways to cache things on the chip necessarily, right? Because uh, like it leads to like difficult memory scheduling issues. So the whole problem was uh, we developed like an approximation algorithm that's like polynomial time that allows you to break down accesses and decompose only on certain accesses and like get major speed ups on the chip. And lastly, just a wombo, I think, um, like it's been a fabulous team effort. Uh, we've just, just the scale that we've hit is, has been really interesting for us. Like, as I said, it was like around 1.6 billion generations of artwork and around 1.4 billion like lip syncing generations over the last two years. And yeah, that, that, that scale just allowed us to work on like a large set of problems that we otherwise would not have the, had the opportunity to work on. Yeah. And, and as somebody who's been through, I guess, you know, like a, a wealth of different experiences and especially with somebody who has like, like as you, who's done like already so much, um, I'm sure you've accumulated a few, I guess, hot takes or unpopular opinions about the industry or about like, whether it's a technical thing or just like a, like industry thing or just something personal, um, would you have a machine learning data science compiler hot take or unpopular opinion? Hot take. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, it's not necessarily a hot take. It's something that's like well understood. Like don't throw a vision transformer at like a Titanic data set. Um, there is a, there is a decent amount of like relationship between the complexity of your data, the size of your data set and the complexity of the models you're throwing at it to the point where you might number one, uh, not even converge your training loss while at the same time being, uh, while at the same time, even potentially getting worse performance than very simple, simple metrics, right? Like to this point, deep learning has underperformed. Uh, traditional statistical techniques, think like random forest, think like XGBoost, when it's come to highly structured tabular data sets for prediction-based problems, not generation-based problems. And so it's like, sure, there are like really cool new things that come out, but just identifying to where things should apply, but at the same time, not taking it too far, right? Like there is good amount of merit in making like unconventional takes on what kind of model architectures apply where, right? Like the entire like squeeze and excite mechanism, um, that was like a completely random unrelated model architecture that was uh, suddenly thrown onto convolution layers. And we saw a major improvement in model performance on most benchmarks. So there is a good space for innovation and like trying unconventional things, but also for recognizing that not every not every model innovation is suited for every problem right like so like like you said don't throw a vision transformer at a at the titanic data set and don't um you know you don't you don't need a fancy model to sometimes just fit a regression line i guess exactly and it's also potentially likely that the kind of relationships you're modeling might just be linear relationships or like very simple non-linear relationships that are far easily captured with like a linear regression, logistic regression, something on those lines. But at the same time, the second take I have is just chase interesting problems. And what I mean by that is when I look back at like the internships I've had, the fondest memories are not of how, um, like there is some amount of conflation here, but like, I always associate like my memories of what I've done or like my, like the proudest moments of with what I've done with like the really cool problems that you're working mm-hmm. on. And I think like I always indexed for that when trying to find a job in the sense that, Hey, you're looking for a new role and you, you're doing an internship in the grand scheme of uh, like a 20, 30 year career, maybe a 20% pay difference isn't gonna like if it does not significantly impact your financial situation, sure, it's a position of privilege, but if it does not impact your situation, there might be merit in not just chasing like the most prestigious well-paid role, but just chasing something that's 
really really cool and that is something that for for me for example like that is what motivated me to do like a research assistantship on campus because i was like these problems just seem really cool and because the fact of life is that once you graduate like full time roles are always going to be an opportunity to say maximize compensation maximize like any other metric that is important to you but internships should be purely exploratory right if you have the means to do so and with that in mind you get to work on like really interesting problems think like drug discovery at like a biotech startup or things like that that maybe like off the beaten path not everyone talks about mm-hmm. that but might be very fulfilling work for you and and i guess that also kind of has to do with the thing you were talking about um it's kind of adjacent to when you say like you don't have to chase prestige it's more about like the things that like finding the things that apply to you specifically yeah it's like don't get me wrong like there's nothing wrong with chasing prestige but like it it is just that most people might just find things that they far more resonate right. with if they try something unconventional right and you just mentioned some of your i guess personal takes on the industry so considering that as well as I guess the innovations and problems we discussed uh, impacting the industry, what do you think will be the next big trend or maybe challenge within the field within, let's say, like the next five, maybe 10 years? Oh, I think the most interesting thing that we are sitting on right now is like artificial intelligence really in production is used by a small set of companies right maybe a lot of places use ml but they are used internally think about like a grocery chain that's using it to like figure out which warehouses to route products to or something like that these are very few places actually use it real time in production use cases think like a facebook that's trying to order like personalize your feed for example right but over the next 5 7 years as one models become far and far more like uh, far better at benchmarks and like very domain specific tasks we're going to see more and more people trying to bring this into production right think about uh, hey some llm that can write contracts for me um, maybe some kind of tool that can actually very efficiently deal with like financial fraud detection and like anomaly detection things like that and what this means is maybe the biggest opportunity to be unlocked is bringing ai to the edge you don't need massive warehouses your phone can run these models maybe a cctv camera can run object detection on the device itself and only send like something that crosses a particular threshold to a central server or uh, think like factories or self driving cars anything where you have power constraints size constraints resource constraints being able to use like the best artificial intelligence models out there and this is both a research and an engineering problem from a research perspective as i mentioned before right like quantization you want to be able to actually like build like smaller distilled models that perform very well but at the same time it's an engineering problem like how do you build hardware that is extremely energy efficient because tops which is like trillions of operations per second is not o- your only north star metric anymore maybe it's like tops per watt that matters far more right. um and so i i really believe that the next decade is going to be a major area of major period of growth for like hardware software co design you want hardware innovation but that really has to come on the back of highly generalizable and efficient software that allows you to bring ai to these kind of like specialized silicon okay yeah no and i think that's what we're seeing right now is just we're in that period where you start seeing all these ai companies pop up and there there's a lot of growth i think happening where people are starting to understand the uses of ai and try and implement those as well Yeah I mean I think like a a really good example of like the kind of demand that's really going to come for uh, these AI models is um uh like at at Wombo for example AWS reported they were literally out of A100 GPUs they did not have GPUs to service across the United States at one point last month because of like literally a shortage of compute in relation to the number of people 
wishing to run these models and sure right now we might be in a form of a hype cycle but eventually as things normalize and our models get even better we have to recognize that maybe our hardware is just not uh, uh ready to handle the kind of load that it needs to i see right and i think it's already, you know, I, I don't didn't really feel like an hour, but it's already been an hour and basically five minutes. Um, and thank you. First of all, thank you for like the load of insight you gave us. I think, you know, coming into this, I didn't know exactly like I, I, I didn't know exactly what I was going to learn, but I really didn't think I was going to learn this much. Um, and I think that especially your skill set, like the intersection it has between compilers and ML is going to be really valuable um, for the people listening in. So Thank you for coming on. Um, thank you for sharing with us, first of all. Of course, of course. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me here. This was a really good hour. Yeah, yeah and I will just quickly um, let everyone know who's listening for the first time. Um, we are the Diving Into the Data Science uh, UWDSC's only data science podcast. This is Envita, our new co-host. So we'll have a quick chance uh, for Envita to say hi. Um, in the next episodes as well. We'll get to know her better. Um, but for now, um, thank you for listening, everybody listening in, whether it's morning, whether it's lunch, whether it's night. I hope you guys have a great time. And please uh, please be sure to tune in next time where we'll be back, um, hopefully with a guest as great as Navia. Uh, very, very flattering, guys. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thanks, Navia. Your, your insights into... I guess just advice and everything was really great. Um, I learned a lot from it personally, so we appreciate your time a lot. Oh, of course. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me guys. 